millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now a special treat to close the year. Stephen and I are going to talk about things that happened or that happened to us in 2016 that didn't suck. Stephen, do you want to go first with a nomination? One of the things which happened to me and didn't suck is I played Papers, Please, which is a brilliant indie video game. You are a border guard in a... Kind, a kind of a of, Soviet, post-Soviet uh, yeah, kind, kind of... of Quasi-Soviet, sort of quasi-Eastern European state. So people kind of come to your border station and you have to look at their passport, decide whether or not it's all in order and whether or not to let them through or not. Yeah. And if you do your job really well, like you can pay your rent and your family can be fed. But equally well, that means sometimes people tell you heart-rending stories about how they just want to be reunited with their son. And then you have to say, I'm sorry, your documents aren't in order. Yeah. But that means that that's hard then, because there is no way to be good in, in papers, please, right? You can either be mean to people and your family can eat, or you can be nice to people and then you get your you know, wages docked. The point of the game is that there is no way to win. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is you can you can try and be slightly better than the system you're in, but the emphasis there is on the word slightly, which is what I liked about it. Yeah, I'm playing The, the Witcher 3 at the moment, and I've settled on a couple of principles that govern how my, my witcherliness. So there was some of the brief line of dialogue at the start about like how you have to, like, oh, the witchers always accept money for their contracts. So I've gone, yes, you know, it is my, you know, it is, this is how this works. It is, you know, relieves people of their moral obligation. Also allows me to buy fancy boots, which I enjoy. But yeah, I just generally have a thing in computer games that I'm just really too good. So Grand Theft Auto I never really enjoyed because I don't want to go around running people over. That's <laughs> that's just kind of a dick move. It's weird because in, say, in Grand Theft Auto, I'm not putting any thought into who the character who's doing it is. Mm. Also, weirdly, my inner completist. So the other... Um, you should, Did you have to kill all of the pigeons? You know, there's that thing where you get an achievement for... Oh no, I'm not that much of a completist. I mean, by in a completist, I mean I kind of just want to see all of the possible endings and sort of the big... Oh, okay. Something like GTA just kind of, it doesn't really feel like there's enough plot in it to be compelling. But the other kind of game in this interesting is One Night Stand, which I heartily recommend buying. It's only three ninety nine online if you just search One Night Stand game. Um, <laughs> that sounds like a bad Google search. But you won't go to prison, uh, but what, you will um, be able What platforms to... is it available on? It's available on uh, Mac... Windows, and I think maybe you can even play it on your mobile, but um, I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, but it, it, it's a it's a PC game, but it's very low res, so anything which can type can can definitely play. Emad, uh, our former welcome scholar, wrote about it for us, didn't he? Yeah. I haven't played it, so tell me about it. So you wake up next to someone who you can't remember the name of uh, after a night of heavy drinking. 
what you point at and click at basically works out how it works out and when you do eventually leave through the front door the kind of circumstances of your leaving mm. and how the two of you leave it were you really good in that or were you just a sort of bit of a swaggering dick well so th- that was the fun thing is the first time i kind of played through sort of as i would approach a one night stand and i got kind of quite a good ending and then you kind of start going right well i know there are 12 other endings here and the thing that it doesn't is really clever is one you you feel very sympathetic for the person who you don't know who you've met and one the fun thing is actually is is the different ways you find things out about her if you start playing through it in a kind of well i'm intrigued as to what happens if i start doing things i definitely wouldn't do did you rifle through her pants drawer you actually can't do that although you can you can steal her underwear um which that doesn't seem very informative about her, but yeah, I, I, I guess. But you then get you get yeah you get kicked out, and there are kind of sort of various. Uh... <laughs> yeah, unsurprisingly, you get kicked out for being a, a major, major perv. What other games did you play this year? I also played Her Story, which is a mm. uh, you are searching through these archives of someone being talked to by the police, and you kind of reconstruct her story. I really love that. We played that for Saturday Review at the start of the year. And I thought, again, it's a really lo-fi game. And yet it's all just you basically typing things in to a search field and then you get little clips of a woman talking to police officers. And like, that's that's it. I agree with you. There has been a really nice thing in the last couple of years. There have been lots of little indie titles that you can point to that aren't just what I kind of think was pay-to-play mobile kind of Candy Crush type things, but things that are very small scale, but just work really nicely on the small scale. But that said, I've just been playing, I've just been playing really big, big games. I judged the BAFTA Game of the Year Awards two years ago, and one of the contenders was Hearthstone. And that was an error in some ways, because I now spent a lot of money on Hearthstone. I've got a problem, Stephen. That's what I'm basically saying at this point. I haven't played it, so maybe... Don't. Don't do it. Maybe it's something I would would get into if I did. (laughs) Moving swiftly along. Let's talk about this house, which is something that I only saw last week. You'd seen in its previous incarnation when it was on the National Theatre? Yeah, it's been at the National Theatre twice. It's been in cinemas. I've actually seen... Every time there's been an opportunity to see this house, I have taken it. Because I'm just that cool. So it is James Graham's play about the 1974 to 1979 Whips uh, offices on both the Tory and Labour sides. Great, um, Graham's JM. Sorry, I had one glass of wine at lunchtime. Uh, James Graham also wrote X and Y, which is a really beautiful little film about maths, Olympiads and families. He's just a very nice writer. I really liked it. I'm, I wish I had seen it earlier. It's funny. It's fast-paced. The staging of it, I think, is really nice. What did you like about it? Because you interviewed him, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Uh, I and Anoush interviewed him, and you can read the interview on the website. And obviously, we, uh, we had a bit of that on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. The thing I like about it most of all, actually, is how skillfully the exposition is weaved into it. And I saw this version very early on in the run, so maybe that's different now. I think my one minor quibble with it at the Garrick is I feel the company of actors doesn't feel as versatile in terms of you don't immediately have the sense of, oh, you're Jerry Adams. Oh, is that how they're supposed to... Yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I did. it was nice to remember that bit that the SNP still get very touchy about if you mention about them essentially not sticking with the Labour government and thus leading to the rise of Margaret Thatcher. They, yeah. don't, they don't like it when people mention that. The other thing is I wouldn't have watched it. I wouldn't watch it if it had come out now. Not because it's not very good, but just because I mostly, when I hear like, oh, it's a play about politics, I just feel very tired. So you're not looking forward to those Donmar things next year? 
I mean, those are really high stakes. I'm really intrigued. So they're doing the Public Accounts Committee. I think that's the right committee, but it's essentially it's Camilla Batmangelic and the Inquiry into Kids Company. And they're doing a light one about the Limehouse Declaration as well, yeah. aren't they? So maybe we should, yeah, we should probably review those on the podcast, but I'm nervous. I am nervous. When this house came out the first time, uh, it was a time when I was eligible for the National Theatre's Entry Pass scheme, which meant you could go for a fiver. And at the time, I was so broke that I couldn't really afford to go to the cinema, but I could afford to go to the National for a fiver. So I saw everything that season. And I just think it's really good and, and really well written. And the, the characters are really well drawn. And now, weirdly, speaking of things which I would usually go, oh God, or something about politics, one of the other things I discovered and really enjoyed this year and really didn't expect to was Hamilton. Oh, in my uh, hatred of being a terrible cliche, I've been worried about talking about my love for Hamilton. But let's just let's just embrace it. Let's go with it. I love it. Yeah, I also think to to wildly offend many of our listeners because I haven't done that recently. I kind of feel that Hamilton is quite an interesting opinion detector, right? And then there's a certain type of opinion about it, which is accompanied by a suite of opinions from a certain type of lefty who invariably is quite rubbish on race issues, right? So, like, for example, so this meme of... So someone wanted to, you know, respect on a lot of things, but their analysis of why Clinton got more African-American voters than Sanders is basically she went to a lot more churches. And it's like, well, okay. If you think that the only thing that he needed to change in terms of his African-American outreach was to go to more churches... You better start trying to summon up enthusiasm for Tim Kaine or Cory Brooker or whoever from the right of the Democrats defeats the candidate from the left of the party if that is your approach to winning over more African-Americans. But when people solely refract Hamilton's success through the prism of white liberals... It's just white so- liberals love it. I think that's a really commonly held opinion. Actually, it's really interesting. I w- was reading you know, the Bridge, David Remnick's book about Obama, and that's, I think that's really interesting on how conflicted black leaders felt about whether or not they should back Obama, which when now you look back on it and you think, why was that even a, you know, why was that even a decision? But there was a lot of kind of, well, hang on, the Clintons have been, you know, have really worked this for a really long time but yeah there is a kind of assumption that actually only posh white new yorkers went to it whereas it was a massive phenomenon among school children i think two million people bought the album these big ham for ham things they did where they had a lottery for tickets in the streets you know it is a genuine grassroots phenomenon which is your favorite song i think my favorite song well actually i think the thing is even better than the actual soundtrack is the mixtape where they've got a variety of... It's not better than the soundtrack, It's though. considerably better than the soundtrack. Whoa, what? what, what, what? But Where Jimmy Fallon ver- is on it in so a way that makes me sad and ashamed for so Jimmy I Fallon. A, the mixtape is a bunch of, of rappers doing songs from Hamilton. And so I think it's better for a couple of reasons. One, because they got Jarul and Ashanti back together. The second is the one problem with the musical, and I think one of the criticisms of it that I can see how if you've never had to speak in public for a long time, you don't realise why this is, is some of the songs do have a weird pace. Because there's so much dialogue in it, they're slightly slower than they ideally would be. Mm. But on the mixtape, because it's recorded in a studio, they're done at proper rapping speed throughout. The reason why I think Usher's version of Wait For It is better, even though he's changed basically nothing, is it's that little bit faster. You think Usher's version of Wait For It is better? It's better than, yeah, just the the Broadway version, of course. Every time that comes on, I think Usher just 
arbitrarily changing a couple of bits where it goes up at the line at the end of the line to down at the end of the line is not recording your own version of it. I mean, I think in terms of the promise of the mixtape, it's arguably the worst other than Jimmy Fallon's. But I also have this whole theory that basically, in an odd way, Hamilton is a quite interesting cultural artifact because its its base of support is the Obama coalition, right? Mm. People of colour and, and white liberals. The interesting thing is the people who are most critical of it are a group of white liberals who don't think of themselves as liberals, but actually, I'm sorry, you are. Sanders uh, voters, just, essentially, like, right? Object- yeah, Sanders voters, who get why they have a critique of the, the white liberals who like it, but don't really understand why their critique annoys a lot of ethnic minorities. Like, not least, yeah, it is the only mainstream musical with lots of parts for ethnic minorities other than the Book of Mormon. Uh, and in the Book of Mormon, their parts are mainly do revolve around... Having maggots in their scrotum. Yeah, jokes about uh, people in Africa. The reason that I like it is I think I really like the the richness of it. There's so much emotion in there. When you think about Angelica's song, Satisfied, about the fact that she is incredibly attracted to Hamilton, but she knows that her sister is this incredibly pure and incredibly good, and so she kind of lets her have it, and then she spells out all her reasons. And when, when he writes the Reynolds pamphlet, when he confesses to having had an affair with Maria Reynolds, that she says to him like you'll never be satisfied god i hope you're satisfied i really like that as just that feels a very real kind of interaction between people hurricane has this line which is i wrote my way out and which in the mixtape becomes dave east and naz and a couple of people and what i really loved about that is the whole promise of hamilton is about the fact that this is an immigrant from the caribbean and there's a bit where john adams calls him creole bastard and you know about someone who's not a wasp basically is one of the founding fathers and and kind of making that case for that but then to then take that to that old rap metaphor which is about the idea that you wrapped your way out essentially right it just i thought it drew a really beautiful thread between three very different sets of life circumstances and drew them all together in this kind of common experience of people whose voices have been not heard and actually making the case for music or pamphlets or rap that is the way that you gain a kind of cultural political legitimacy yeah i i think my favorite of across all the albums is the the my shot version by buster rhymes and then my close second would be Congratulations by Dessa. What's your favourite from the inferior Broadway recording? I really like Wait For It. I mean, I like Wait For It and I like Guns and Ships because I really like extremely fast raps. And I'm not a massive fan of the ones which everyone seems to refer to as being Britpop, like the King George songs. I don't massively like them, actually. I, I see what you mean about them being slightly out of place, maybe, but they do provide a kind of good visual, like a good break. They are good opportunities for the cast to get it breath back yeah i think it's just a really well put together musical because i really worried right then it was when people were going on about it's like is this literally just going to be the kind of thing where someone's like i've got a constitution it's my revolution it's a solution and like, oh god was this written by like mitch ben um <laughs> mitch ben probably listens to the podcast doesn't he it's gonna backfire but yeah that kind of thing which is is fine when mitch ben does it because the point is you're not trying to, to make a, gag, a, a right? work like, of rap that's yeah. the thing is it does work as a credible rap that was always my worry about it because I don't think you can divide rap music from the circumstances of its production right this is where there's such anxiety particularly about cultural appropriation of it because I you know, rap is so incredibly political as an art form that there is always the slight worry about middle class people will come in and you just go hang on a minute you know you have you ever actually been shot in the leg in Compton no you haven't you're from you know Hertfordshire. It's just embarrassing. And that's slightly what worries me about the British production. I think the British production is going to be interesting. One, because, and I'm aware that we've been kindly sent a pamphlet about diversity in the arts, but obviously there's this underlying thing that, as you may or not be aware, creative access, a scheme which places a lot of ethnic minorities in internships in the 
creative industries, as you'd expect from the title, may well lose its government funding, right? And so you, know, you should sign that petition, write to your MP, etc., etc. The important part of all of this is Hamilton succeeded in the US because there were enough minorities to give it second life and its oxygen and to, to buy the original and to do the mixtape. In fact, an usher did wait for it. Okay, you know, but like, Shanti and Jarl don't do anything together now, right? That's, that's kind of a, a symbol of both its quality, but also the audience that was out there for it. I think it will be hard for them simply because we not only haven't created enough ethnic minority actors, as that very good, was it Andrew Morton piece we had a couple of weeks ago in the magazine? About how, yeah, why David Oyo and in Idris Elba have all gone to the States and David Harewood's gone to the States. So in terms of getting an audience for it here, I'm not sure how they will do that. And I think they might try and market it to to West Wing people. I'm not sure there are enough West Wing people. I'm worried that it might be you, me, Danny Finkelstein, Michael Gove and Duncan Weldon, basically. And that'll be it just every night. Um, <laughs> just us there. But yeah. I think... I hope it's successful, partly because my hope is it will be successful enough and then they might make a film. I don't think it would work as a film, but then I'm basing that on the fact that musicals that don't have any dialogue, which is what what this is like, are really tough. I mean, have you seen the Les Mis film? I mean, admittedly, Russell Crowe going, the war is here, I am, the war is here, is not. But I think that's because the problem with the Les Mis film, right, is that they they had to cast actors, many of whom can't sing all that well. Whereas the reason why a movie of Hamilton could work is then the people who did the mixtape, I'm sure, would love to be in a Hamilton film, but they're not going to, like, stand up in the Apollo Theatre night after night, right? Mm. And so the potential to do a Hamilton film well, I think, is is possible. I think, you know, there's the potential for them to make a success of it here, but the casting will be very tricky, and I wonder if they've really got it well, I also, I think, in, in demographic terms, I mean, we always have this argument when we talk about diversity, and that conversation is so dominated by Americans. I mean, you remember this happening when Suffragette came out, and you had all these American feminists going, why aren't there any black people being represented? And you were like, well, actually, guess what? The racial histories of Britain and America are really rather different. But in the same way that Afro-Caribbean descendant people are... Th- three percent of the population here whereas uh indian pakistani bangladeshi are much greater like eight or nine percent i hope that they would think well actually do you know i could i could cast someone from a indian heritage in this it's like they're not gonna be too prescriptive but but then my hope um because i do think one of the reasons why i'm a bit dubious about the phrase people of color and its uses some of the time is that it's very easy particularly because it comes from the states for people to go oh look we are diverse and representative look, we've got some mostly middle-class black people, nice little cell phone there, in, in this room, and kind of ignoring that, you know, in terms of your kind of corporate social responsibility and representing the community that you're in, mm. it's very easy if you're Deutsche Bank to go, oh, look, we've got some black people, we've got some nice people. But the minority that lives around in the shadow of Canary Wharf is Pakistani and Bangladeshi. And that's really not represented at all on Deutsch's floor. But because people go like, look, we're very good at people of colour, it's just like, well, you're not you're not actually. And it becomes a, a racket for a couple of, of black people to speak ex-cathedra for every other minority out there. I thought you'd come around to people of colour. I have. I am I was, writing I had, a, piece about, a piece about why. I had so, updated my handbook so, accordingly. So, I, like I said, I have a complicated relationship with it as a phrase, partly because... So I had a couple of problems with it. One, I feel it, it wants both purports to speak for a wide and varied minority group in the UK, but it also attempts to speak to the struggles of people of, of colour in, in the global... of ethnic majorities in the global south. Mm. A couple of things have changed my view on that. Actually, I say the two things were Trump and Brexit, right? 
where actually there has been a lot of unity between people of colour, regardless of how they felt about Hillary or Bernie, about the fact that actually this was not an election about the radicalism or lack thereof of the Democratic candidate. Um, this was a kind of survival election of like, do you want to be? I mean, both in terms of taking the consequences of it uh, and taking it seriously, but also in what the result was actually about. Mm. There's been an awful lot of from both white liberals who kind of want to go, oh, maybe the problem isn't we like you know condemned too much, and white lefties of going, oh, the problem was isn't we we weren't radical enough, right? But these voters who who picked an explicitly racist candidate for president. Uh, they rejected Zephyr Teachout in New York. She lost in a district Hillary won over over Trump. They rejected Russ Feingold in Wisconsin by a bigger margin and by more votes than Hillary Clinton lost uh, the presidential race. Uh, they elected, uh, oh God, what's his face name? John Judge, Joe Judge, um, Joe Just, but yeah, as the um, as the can as the gubernatorial candidate in West Virginia, someone who ran on an openly racist platform. They rejected a referendum on on single payer. And one of the really irritating things about the US election is being told by a bunch of white people that people who voted to destroy me didn't really want to do it. They actually wanted a bunch of things they had the option to vote for that night, but ostentatiously rejected every option to do so, right? Like, this this idea... If, if there had been split ticketing between Trump and Zephyr Teachout, I would be willing to engage with the argument that what those people didn't mean is actually... I quite like a tax cut. I don't like uh, black people. Not least, I mean, these are people who tell pollsters and focus groups and tell interviewers and journalists that they think that when Trump says he will scrap Obamacare, he doesn't mean it because it's benefited them. And they trust Trump to manage Obamacare more than Barack Obama. I just think if you don't get them, there was a... I think that one yeah. of the things that really changed my thinking on this is a book called White Rage, which uh, Ed Yong recommended in his end-of-year books. I can't remember the name of the author. But it takes it through essentially that kind of white lash thesis about the fact that white voters support welfare things in the US less when they think that they will benefit black Americans, right? There is an explicitly... Uh, I guess it's a way of... of it, and I do think economic anxiety ties into it, although I know that's become one of those kind of stupid buzz phrases, because it's a kind of, you know, I, I want a president who looks after our interests, yeah. and that's in itself is a, is kind of a racially coded thing. So that's what, that is a book I would recommend. Let's segue on to other books I would recommend that I've read this year. Um, the Power by Naomi Alderman, uh, Women Get the Ability to Electrocute Men. Uh, really, really will cheer you right up. You'll just think, just who could I on the tube? People who walk slowly, you know, man spreaders. Just give them a little. You could do it when I run out, run off to a completely different topic on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, you just hear a kind of occasional sort of um, swing time uh, by Zadie Smith. Um, I don't think it's as good as NW, uh, but obviously NW is is about living in 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 bits of North London. I know very well, so it was yeah. very very much like a, a home fixture as far as I was concerned. So um, was... In the Dark Room by Susan Faludi, which is a story of her father who began life as Istvan Friedman. He was Hungarian Jewish. He survived the Holocaust, moved to America, became Stephen Faludi, and Faludi is a kind of very Magyar, like a very ethnically Hungarian, i.e., very ostentatiously not Jewish name. And then at the age of seventy six, had gender reassignment surgery and. 
Highland and became Stephanie Faludi. Like, what an, what is there a more emblematically 20th century life than that? And it was an incredible book, and it really subtly wove together different aspects of gender identity, national identity, what Jewishness has meant in the 20th century. I love that. And I'm basically on retainer for Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which is about the aftermath of the 99% of humanity is wiped out by a, a flu. I know this is a really weird thing to say, but despite the fact that it's an apocalyptic novel, it actually it was quite uplifting in a weird way. Yeah, and I can't remember if it came out this year, but I'm going to just recommend books I like. Oh, and Station Eleven didn't. Yeah. It's elderly, so you can um, go go ahead. The Black Presidency by um, Eric Dyson about Obama. It's painful to reread it now in the context of what happened, partly because I think the thing I realise is in some of the criticisms I and Dyson and a lot of other people had about Obama's explicit foregrounding of black, failure to foreground uh, black concerns, which is obviously one of the few things I would say Hillary did better and more radically than Obama uh, did in her 26 campaign. I now think it turns out that there were negative political consequences to effectively frightening white Americans. Lyndall Roper's biography of Martin Luther, um, I I think it's very good. Uh, That's Martin Luther, the theologian, not Martin Luther King. Um, The Warden Ended Peace by Margaret Macmillan, I really enjoyed. I think it came out last year. It Mm -hmm. also has one of the best opening lines in a history book ever. Louvain was an ordinary town, but it made a splendid fire. Very nice. Uh, What else have I read and enjoyed this year? And novels. Actually, weirdly. You haven't read any novels? No, I've read a lot this year, but I feel that I haven't had... I haven't read enough novels. I I haven't had one which I... Thea Bertram posted about, you know, tips for getting through 2017, and one of them was read fiction. And I just thought, you know, actually, I am going to read. I've got a big pile of things to read, and quite a lot of them is... Because I mostly read fiction, so I think you should read huh. the Kate Atkinson um, detective novels. They're, they're really good. I have good. downloaded that to my Kindle. Um, what else is really good fiction-wise And I've read? Uh, Do Not Say We Have Nothing uh, is, is very good. That came out this year. A Little Life I Found Unbearable. Actually, The Children Act by Ian McEwan... Uh, which was weird because it broke his pattern of good novel, bad novel, right? So Sweet Tooth was kind of good, but sort of in a pulpy way. You didn't like way. the fetus one. Oh, the fetus one is appalling. Nutshell, right? Nutshell. But the Children Act is really good. It's about a lawyer and uh, a judge in child protection services. It's, it's sparsely written. It's really well put together. Oh, and my favourite book I think this came out this year was The Noise of Time by Julian Barnes, uh, which is about Shostakovich who was inarguably the composer of the Soviet Union, probably its greatest composer, and his uh, relationship with the regime. That's quite, that's, I think that's enough. That is an impressive number. Like No one is judging you for your lack of fiction reading abilities. Finally, has there been one political thing that you have enjoyed this year? Of course. <laughs> Watching <laughs> Zach Goldsmith lose, not once, but twice. And the, the, the thing is, I would not have thought that I could... If someone had told me watching him lose in a landslide to Sadiq Khan, if someone said, oh, no, no, you'll actually enjoy the second time even more, I I wouldn't have believed it. But I think, one, because of the first time, right? Okay, obviously he had the option not to disgrace himself by running a dog whistle campaign against Sadiq Khan. But um, there there was going to be a mayoral election. Boris Johnson for whatever you think about his other qualities, is a phenomenal political force and it was going to be very hard for the Tories to win London without them. And yeah, and Sadiq Khan is a very able politician. He really gets the London electorate. He was going to be hard hard to beat. I think Labour had four candidates who could have turned over pretty much anyone the Tories could have put forward with ease. 
And in an odd way, the nice thing about his awful campaign is it kind of turned a routine win for Labour into this one kind that really, of people really one that savored. was really enjoyable. But the wonderful thing about the second time is one that so many people hadn't seen it coming, which is was is always nice. It was nice having failed to see Trump coming to get to like cleanse the palate by getting something right. But also because he didn't have to do it, he made the promise to stand down in 2015 in an election he was categorically not going to lose to the Lib Dems, right? He then effectively had a, had a tantrum. I'm, I'm sorry, the people of Richmond don't get to veto infrastructure projects, right? Like that's not how it works. Not least because the idea that, that London has had too, too little of a say over infrastructure spending decisions in this country is for the birds. And he lost. And it was wonderful. Just because he lost again. And because he ran a really nasty campaign against Sadiq Khan. And I'm just glad that he lost. Um, my nomination, and I'm aware that I've infected other people in the office with this, is that the usefulness of Daniel Hannan as a way to focus all my previously nebulous angst and irritation over Brexit into one like easy monthly package. A question that some of our listeners have asked, right, is why do you dislike Dan Hannan so much? I mean, he's a liberal Brexiteer. He... Yeah, there are many worse people than Dan Hanan with a, a Vote Leave badge on. My problem with it is, is that I just don't believe him when he says, he, you know, he just even thinking about it makes me, I like Hulk smash. He wrote a piece that's like, from the outside, people think that Brexit was racist. It's up to us to make, you know, to make the case that it wasn't. And it's like, I don't know what bit of Nigel Farage standing in front of a poster full of brown people with breaking point written on it could possibly have given anyone the idea that there was any kind of racial tones to this at all. And I just, it just makes me so angry. Stephen, (laughs) I have to go and read that. You know, the great Matthew Paris piece where he said, you know, those guys, those liberal, uh, can make us the Singapore of the English Channel guys, knew that they could only get 15 to 20% of the electorate. So they hitched their wagon to a referendum on border control. And that's how they won. And now they say anybody who mentions that is the real racist. And that's what bakes my muffin. Yeah, I mean, to answer to answer the question of the listeners myself, my, my objection, right, is that there has been no point in human history in which the oppression of one minority group by a majority, or in some cases a majority by a minority, has not been facilitated by people who know in their hearts that it's wrong. And the standard you walk by is the standard you accept, right? People like Dan Han knew that Turkey was not going to join the European Union. And they knew that that campaign about it they were doing was about making a referendum on border control, speaking to the idea of Englishness and whiteness under threat. They absolutely knew that that was what that campaign was about, but it was a standard they were willing to walk by in order to get more control over fisheries policy. Now, fair enough, maybe it will turn out in 50 years and getting control over fisheries policy is what unlocked a great era of, of British economic success. However, this idea that you are less culpable for the excesses of Brexit because you felt bad about it no, you're more culpable because you felt bad about it. I also like, think it's a fundamentally dishonest bargain. I think if they'd gone to people and said, actually, all the suggestions are that economically we'll have a, you know, it'll be, we will grow less fast. We'll still grow, but we'll grow less fast. You know, and that's the trade-off that we're willing to make. But selling people this prospectus of complete sunlit uplands and everything being perfect and brilliant. And and then I there is just no way that any of those guys are going to ever say mea culpa if any of it goes wrong, right? It will never, ever be their fault. And that's what irritates me. It's because you can't play against people like that. They're not... They're playing with a stacked deck. I also think... Also, the guy is still... 
He's still taking his salary, Stephen, right? He made a pious little video where he went, I want people to sack me. We sacked you. Well done. I didn't vote to sack you. I was actually kind of happy to continue paying your absurds at like 8,000 euro a month salary plus staffing costs plus office costs. None it's of which you can... It's actually gone up a bit in value because of the collection <clears throat> of the pound. None of which you can find out, right? Because it's not published anyway. It's totally non-transparent, which admittedly is a problem with the European Union. But... What value have I had from him sitting in that parliament for 20 years, essentially using my tax money to finance writing really very poor op-eds for the Washington Spectator, whatever that turns out to be. And he's still taking the money now. He's still taking it now. We're leaving. We're on the way out. What is he using that money for? And that was Helium Lewis. Um... <laughs> it just makes me so cross. You know, I'm just, you know what I'm really tired of, Stephen? Sorry. This is this definitely why I shouldn't have a glass of wine at lunchtime. People with more money than me telling me that I'm the elite because I'm left-wing, right? People who couldn't afford to put their kids through private school, who probably got, you know, very nice houses, who they're, they're, what they mean by elite is left-wing. Just say left-wing. Just say left-wing. I know I've got a really nice life, but you also have a really nice life. There is no, like, that we're not, you know, we're not separated by this divide where you are ye humble working man and I am like living a life of gilded, swan-eating privilege. We're both living a pretty good life. Do you know the other thing that the lefty elite won't say? Happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Christmas. Happy holidays, one and all. Happy Festivus, Stephen. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, presented by Helen Lewis and me, Stephen Bush, and produced by India Bork. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.